What's good? It's 10 8 with the Next Phase Podcast. About to do another interview, hitting you with some of that sobriety related content. You know, keeping it real all the way through. We are not affiliated with AA, NA, CA, AAA, no A's. You know, we just keep it in 100. My name is Jeremy W. My drug of choice is whatever I can get my hands on. But if I had all the drugs in a pile, I would reach for methamphetamines. That would be my number one choice. But I would drink, I would sniff uh, glue, I would do whatever I'd get my hands on. But meth is my primary drug of choice. And uh, thanks for having me on your podcast. And uh, how much sobriety time do you have currently? Um, Currently, from August 11th, 2020 until now, I'm coming up on six months. And before that, though, you had years, right? I had three years before that, and then before that, I had almost 13 years. And then before that, I had a few years. Okay. Can you tell me about a time or when everything just seemed hopeless for you or just elaborate or touch on your story somewhat? Hopeless for me might be backwards compared to a lot of people. They're, they're going to talk about, and, I'm, and I'm, I've heard a lot of stories, and I'm basing it off of that. They're going to talk about being hopeless while they were using drugs and alcohol. For me... I had a few years sober and I, me and my wife were saving money to, to buy a house. And I was working in a hospital at the time and I really didn't like the hospital anymore. And so I wanted to switch gears and do something else. And I had seen an ad online for this trucking company that pay, they advertised 60,000 in your first year. And I was thinking that'd be perfect. That'll help us save for a house. So I started driving trucks, but it's pretty demanding. I was gone all but three days a month. I would come home for three days out of the month, and I was a big family guy, into my kids, into my wife, and uh, it was really hard on me. But also, I'm a drug addict and alcoholic. I need meetings. I need to work a program. And when I was on the road, I wasn't doing any of that. And that's when I felt the most hopeless. And after about 10 months of that, I relapsed. I had got it in my head that uh, that I could I could use tonight and not tomorrow, and that's not the case. And I know that not to be the case, but when I'm not working a program, the insanity returns. Things that I know are not true start to seem like reality, like I can get high tonight and not tomorrow. That Then that's not a reality for me. But that's I felt the most hopeless before I got high. And we were talking about a situation or an analogy you had about working out and... And working a program? Yeah. It, and that's exactly okay so the insanity of not working a program is just would be very similar to going to the gym being committed watching your diet getting in shape and seeing the results and changing and and then one day you say look you know what i'm i'm going to eat whatever i want i'm not going to go to the gym but i'm just going to continue to look like this that makes no sense But in recovery, we do the same thing. We start working a program, things start to change, we start to feel different. We probably, in most cases, start to even look different. And at some point, we go, well, I'm going to quit doing that, and I'm just going to keep doing. I'm just going to keep looking like this and acting like this and feeling like this. And that's not the case. We return back to our old selves, just like you would if you had quit going to the gym. You're not maintaining it. You're not maintaining the program. Yeah, okay. And... How do you feel about that? Like, what are you doing now that's different from back then? Here's the thing. There's a a spot in the big book where it talks about alcoholics 
forgetting about the pain and the consequences and the misery that we had just a few days ago or a week ago or months ago. And I know that that happens to me over a period of time. I forget about how bad it was. And only with like a fresh ass kick and do I really get involved. Um, anytime I've ever relapsed, I come back into the program full of piss and vinegar and dead and determined to do what I need to do. I get a sponsor. I start working the steps. I'm going to meetings. I'm real gung-ho. Over a period of time, I kind of start forgetting about the ass-kicking that I got from drugs and alcohol, and I start relaxing and taking it easy. And, uh, and, and when I do that, I start slipping back. I can relate to that because... I always forget of how bad it was last time. We always forget. We think we can do it different this time. Uh, it's not going to be the same. I don't know if that's like a mechanism in our brains that try to protect us from the traumas of all the stuff that we did, the pain we caused, or the things we've been through. But something along the way makes us forget how bad it was. And Every day we need that reminder, I guess. Every day we got to live the program. I guess that's why they say call your sponsor, go to meetings to remind yourself every day. I don't want to go back to that. What do you do besides, like, you go to meetings? Okay, so I have a sponsor. So I have a sponsor. I go to meetings. I chair meetings. I'm part of the home group. And that's being part of the home group is is my responsibility to be involved with the meeting. But sometimes those business meetings are the most boringest things you could go to. But I want to do my part to participate in the meeting. Um, I help other people throughout the day. I've got a couple guys that call me now for advice. Um, I pray. First thing in the morning, I read page 86 upon awakening, and I turn my life over to God. I've got a, a daily reprieve. So every day, my sobriety is based off of my relationship with the higher power. Um, I do that. I'm constantly trying to implement the principles of AA in my life. And I don't do it perfectly. I do the best I can and I make mistakes. And at night when I retire at night and I do a 10th step and I review my day, I look at the mistakes and, and try to improve on those for the next day. Um, so that, that's kind of a sh probably the short version. Okay, I always like to ask everybody about the higher power question because I know that trips a lot of people up. A lot of people don't have a connection with the higher power or understand that concept. Can you elaborate on that some? I can tell you for me, for me it's real easy to get messed up. I can go sit in the living room, turn on the TV, ancient aliens comes on, and the next thing you know, God is an alien that created everything. I can fall right into that. Yeah. But aliens aren't going to keep me sober. And so what happened was I was so desperate to get sober, it didn't matter. If there was just some weird-looking rock and they came to me and said, Look, millions of people have gotten sober jumping up on uh, up and down on this rock just saying ooga booga or whatever, I would do it. Whether I understood it or not, I would do it knowing that people, millions of people got sober doing that. And that was really what drove me. If all of these people are getting sober doing this, then I'm going to give it a shot. I'm not going to sit here and question it and try to figure it out. I'm just going to do it. I can relate to that as well because I'm very hard-headed. I got to experience it 
do it myself. I got to figure it out myself. And my first run at AA, I really couldn't relate. I ain't even gonna lie. I didn't really open up the big book. I was trying to do it my way. And this time around, I'm like, okay, let me work this program to see if it really works because it's working for other people. Then I'm hearing the history. Okay, it's been around for 80 plus years and it saved millions of people's lives, brought families back together. It's like, if you work the program, it'll work for you. So when you, like, what is something when you first got sober that you needed to hear that you didn't know? Well, you know what? Let's go back to the last one real quick because if I could figure out God, he wouldn't be much of a God. That's true. You know, so it's beyond my understanding. I just have to have faith. Um, what was that? The hardest part? Uh, yeah, the hardest part or something that you wish you knew back when you first got sober. Okay. You know what? So this time around, when I relapsed, I had a wife of almost 15 years and she wanted a divorce. I went out for a week and uh, I say that like I'm rationalizing, like I'm justifying. It was only a week. No, you know what? She's entitled to make that decision. and But it affected me really it was really difficult for me to deal with and there was this constant um, just pain like going on in my head I was confused, I didn't know what to do but I knew that I needed to get sober and the only type of peace that I had from from those thoughts was picking up the big book and working with another alcoholic so I was doing that a lot I would just say hey you want to read the big book and we would sit down and when I was doing that I didn't think of nothing but that so I went through the big book several times um, in a a 60 day period and I really it's kind of embarrassing to say this I had missed the boat completely all those other years staying sober the entire point of the book was to find a higher power. That's it. Not all that other stuff. It's just about finding a higher power. If you think going to meetings and having a sponsor is the program, you have missed it completely. Because that is... That's just like, we can go back to the gym analogy. That's like meeting up with your friend, talking about going to the gym and talking about working out, but never going in and doing it. That's what it would be like going to meetings and not doing the work. And all of the work is related to connecting you with a higher power. That's what it's all about. The wreckage of your past, clearing that away and making a clear path between you and a higher power. It's all about that. Yeah, I believe that because meetings don't keep nobody sober. You can go to a meeting five times a day, every single day, and that will not keep you sober. It might keep you busy, but if you're going to go back out, you're going to go back out. And when I say go back out, for those that don't know, that means going back out and getting high again, getting drunk again, doing the same negative, destructive behavior that got you in the program. Well, the meetings are just like a business meeting. You go, imagine you go to a business meeting, you sit there, you talk about what needs to be fixed, you get everybody pumped up and encouraged, and instead of leaving the meeting and going to work, you just get up and go home. That, that wouldn't be much of a business meeting. That's what's happening in AA. You go in and talk about what you're doing outside the rooms and how you're implementing it into your life. And a lot of times you can leave a meeting pumped up. All right, let's do this. Let's stay sober. And you go out and you're experiencing life on life's terms where you get to apply these principles that you were talking about. That's really what's going on. And you go back to the meeting and try to fine tune it and listen to other things that other people are doing so that you can implement it outside the meeting. That's really what it's about 
yeah, learning the big book, learning the principles of honesty, humility, and generosity, pretty much, because the whole concept of it is giving back and, uh, what is it, uh, being a service, that's what they call it, so, okay, let me ask you another question, what is the common myth about addiction that's true or false? Okay, well, it depends on the point of view you're looking at. There's the non-alcoholic point of view. The non-alcoholic point of view is that drug addicts and alcoholics are weak-willed, and that's it. They're just weak-willed. We know, if you're in our shoes, that that's not the case. I can get up, go to the gym, which I do on a daily basis, watch what I eat, get in great shape, which is a great example of willpower, and listen to a non-alcoholic who's very out of shape trying to tell me about willpower who can't stop eating Twinkies. All right? And I had a job, I was the director of operations of a corporation for 13 years, and I, I may have missed one day in the 13 years, if that, but I showed up every day. I was going to say rain, sleet, or snow, but we live in Arizona, yeah. and uh, that makes it easy. But I know a lot of addicts, alcoholics as well, that will work their ass off to get high, to get drunk. They will go out of, man, they are, they will find a way. They're, I don't even know how to explain it. They will go and make things happen, walk 20 miles to get their fix. And I don't think they're weak-willed. It's just they're... There's a spiritual malady. There's something that makes us mentally and bodily different than the normal person. I can get up, like I said, watch my diet to the T, weigh my food, know exactly what I'm putting in my body, go to the gym, and do specific exercises on a daily basis and hold that regimen for years. But if I take a drink... All bets are off. I can't stop. I cannot stop the second one. I cannot stop the third one. And I cannot stop the consequences that are soon to follow. Sometimes I can't even stop the first drink. If I'm not going to meetings and I'm not spiritually fit, I don't even have a defense against the first drink. I like that because being spiritually fit is a big part of staying sober. Because we, I did an interview the other day and um, we were talking about how if you're not living the like spiritually fit life the little compromises you make during your day they add up and eventually you're rationalizing well that that one drink or i can use on the weekends and i'll be okay how do you feel about that well i believe that's all true the the daily program I have is to get rid of that weight so it doesn't build up. At the end of the day, when I do a 10-step, I'm getting rid of the dirt, and I'm trying not to do it again, and I'm trying to fine-tune it, and I'm trying to become more of a spiritual person with God. Um, and if I don't, it does build up, and it's a lot of weight to carry, and eventually I go back out and I drink. Yeah, it's those resentments because I'm, I'm barely getting used to calling my sponsor because before I would call him when I felt like it, that wasn't too often. Now I'm trying to at least do it every day because little stuff throughout the day bothers me. And I it sounds ridiculous when I say it out loud to him so I can catch myself like, damn, I sound crazy right now. Complaining about this little small insignificant issue, but yet it messed my day up for some reason. And it's petty. Well, yeah, and a lot of times, unless I'm a victim, which most of the time I'm not, 
I did something to create that resentment. It, most of it's me. If I go and look at it, well, I did this, and so they did that. And now I'm mad at them. But I started it. I got the ball rolling in that direction, or they wouldn't have done that if I didn't do this. Yeah. I always play a role in it, and so most of the time. When I'm not healthy, I focus on their behavior and what they're doing. When I should be focusing on me and what I did. Let's build more on that because I've had like when I read that in the big book, I forgot what page it's on, but it was crazy. I know like it. The book is 80 years old, and I started relating to it. Like, damn, this is my life. This is the way I live. Like. Anybody that I feel did me wrong, or I probably caused it. Nine times out of ten, I caused it, or I did something that I shouldn't have been doing in the first place that led to it. Yeah, like I was saying, I was not. I'm not the victim. Most of the time, the victims were the people around me. I victimized people, and I used them. And if I didn't get to, now I'm mad at them. That's really as harsh as it was. It really probably comes down to something like that. And like you had mentioned about the big book being 80 years old, and the thing is, it's, it will always be relevant because an alcoholic is always an alcoholic, and those character defects, human behavior will always be human behavior, whether there's computers or a phonograph or they're riding horseback. Humans still have emotions and behave the same as they did back then. So. An alcoholic in biblical times is an alcoholic in the twenties, and an alcoholic even today. Yeah, that character defects. I hate it when I got that list from my sponsor last time, and all the defects that he stated for me. And I started thinking about it, like, wow, that is me—selfish, uh, greedy, all the things that were on that list. It was a long list too, but it's just like, wow. But I am all that at some point in time. I can be. I, I am every single one of those, and like you were saying, we get upset when we can't have our way. Pretty much, we can't get what we want, so we act out. And I'm being basic. That's the whole basic term of it. I'm not trying to sugarcoat it. We act like children at certain points of time for whatever reason. How do you feel? Do you think I'm being too harsh? I, I can I completely agree with you. I think I was talking. We were talking yesterday about. Could you imagine that some guy comes over to me, he calls me a name, and and I go hit him. I hit the guy because he's called me a name, and having to call my wife and say, "Hey, I'm in jail. Why are you in jail?" Well, this guy called me a name, and you struck him. Yes. That's it's ridiculous. It's kindergarten type stuff, but there are people that live by that rule. I used to. Yeah, if you call me this, I'm going to do something about it. It doesn't matter what this person thinks. I mean, someone used to tell me a long time ago, and it really didn't make sense to me, but it does make sense now. And they said, consider the source. Like, I'm not going to take financial advice from a guy who crawls out of a bush. He doesn't have the experience that I need. Because he's living in a bush, so I don't believe he can give me financial advice. The same happens to this other guy whose life is all messed up. He calls me an asshole. What do I care what he thinks? What do I care? I really don't. Why am I giving him so much power? I'm not going to give him any. That is true. I'm barely learning that because 
I used to still get upset about what people said or they might not have touched me, but they still said something or thought a certain way about me and I felt slighted. I felt resentful. And I think because sometimes I would, uh, I was fooled from their outer appearance. Like if a child came up and called me a name, I really wouldn't care. They're a kid. This is still a kid in a full-grown body. And so sometimes I'm thinking because they should be an adult and they're not, that I treat them as if they're an adult, but they're not. They're still children on the inside. That's true. That's true. A lot of people don't even understand basic, like, decency, basic, just the way to carry themselves. And the big book talks about... uh, you know, treating them like a sick man, and they're sick. If they're behaving like that, they're sick. And and I, I'm not going to feed into it. I, I couldn't imagine doing that nowadays. I used to, like you said, there was a time in my life when I probably not only would I have done something about it, I would be forced to do something about it because of the type of people I associated with would not let me off the hook. I would have to do it. <laughs> That's true. That's true. That's how I felt because, like, you know, I had, I, I wanted to keep that street rep. I needed to have that. That's what mattered and just what people thought about me. Now I could care less. So that's probably a good point, too. Who do I associate with? I don't hang out with people like that anymore, and I hang out with healthy people that, that would probably encourage me. Let's say that situation happened. Someone would encourage me. They'd say, just forget about that guy or whatever. They would encourage me in the right direction. Then hanging out with the the old crew that would encourage me in the wrong direction. So you're sur- the people that you surround yourself with is, is a big deal. That's, that's very true. You want to be successful, hang around successful people. It's simple as that. Like you'll learn from them and they'll rub off on you. You want to be a nobody hang around with nobodies that ain't going nowhere you won't go anywhere and that's guaranteed but uh, another question how do you feel about the epidemic that's affecting the well america right now at least with fentanyl opiate crisis all that well you know i don't know much about that to be honest with you i know that uh Drugs have been around for a long time, and people have been dying from drugs for a long time. I know this one is really much more publicized. You hear a lot more about it. Um, but other than that, I don't know much about it. I've seen, uh, on my last relapse, I was doing meth, and i seen these guys that were doing fentanyl. And uh, and I may have done some. I think somebody, this guy gave me a little tiny piece of it, and I um, took it, and I, I slept for like 24 hours. But it's not really my thing. Like I said, I'm a drug addict. I'll do anything. But that probably isn't one of them. Um, I did it and just slept the whole time. I do more. I like to, I do methamphetamine, stay awake, get and do things. Sleeping is not. I know how to sleep. <laughs> yeah, the opiates. That ain't no joke. That's why I stopped using opiates because of the fentanyl situation. Like at one point in my life, I was on pills every day, popping them like candy. My doctor gave them to me. Like here. Take some of these uh, Percocets. Take some of these uh, Xanax. And I was lit. Doctor prescribed. Just walking around with a legal high. And eventually, I decided I couldn't do it no more. But then, I wanted to stop in my head, but yet my body was like, nah. So I had to hit the street for him. And then the fentanyl came, and somebody gave me some fentanyl one day. And I thought I was going to die. Literally, felt like I was going to die that night. 
Yeah, I don't know much about it, but I mean, if we were going to go down the political road a little bit, that you know, I feel that uh, the laws are maybe a little the the law. I don't want to say the laws are too harsh. I don't want to say that. I want to say that the that they're not focusing on the on dealing with it correctly, because I can tell you between me and any other drug addict that I know, we never said, I can't do that. It's illegal. We've never said that because that's not going to keep us sober. Being illegal has never kept anybody sober. It's never stopped anyone from getting high. So that's not the right way to deal with it. Um, So there's a lot of people locked up and there's not enough people in recovery. And I think, I don't know, there's, there should be some sort of way to fix that. tell you what that's a good example of so here's what we do know we know a lot of people are dying from fentanyl we know that uh, it's tearing families apart here's what we also know in being drug addicts and alcoholics is that consequences alone do not keep us sober if you go look if you get high again you're going to lose your wife well i did you get high again you're going to go to prison i did if you get high again you're going to lose that corporate position i did but that's like you said, though, we forget about the negative aspects of addiction, alcoholism. We forget. So, you know, we're trying to, we're, I don't know what it is. Why, why do we forget? And what's left, I mean, I've done all those other things. If you get high again, you're going to die. That's the truth. And that's, that's what all of us have to try to keep in mind. We sometimes, and when you hear someone downplaying it, they're further from reality than someone who can admit it. I could die. I could die if I do this. It's really that serious. People are dying all the time. And if it's not from the drug, it's from the situations that you're putting yourself in. Every single week I'm hearing about somebody that died from a fentanyl overdose. They thought it was heroin, but it had fentanyl cut with it. And they died. And it's just crazy. It's like, wow, this ain't no joke. But yet, it, you know, it was created for... Like, how did it, did it happen? How did it start? And why, what do you, how do you think it got so out of control? Yeah, the fentanyl will just opioids, you know, drugs, like you said, they're illegal and people, people still do them. That just makes it more valuable, right? Yeah, I'm not really sure what the answer is to that. Like, uh, I just know that any mind altering substance, um, if you're an addict or alcoholic, that you can't stop once you start. But it could have been anything. I think that person, the fentanyl addict, could have very well been a meth addict. They could have very well been an alcoholic. They just so happened to have done that, and that's the one that they fell in love with. Um, Same for me. Mine happened to be methamphetamines. My dad was doing methamphetamines, and that's what I was introduced to, so that's what I started doing. But if I lived in a different house where it was drinking, I'd have been an alcoholic. I was, I'm predestined to to be one or the other. It's just something about me that's different, where in that sense, where I'm bodily and mentally different than other people. My brother, on the other hand, we lived in the same home. He, uh, he can drink and set it down. 
he's he's not like me at all. And like as he's got a glass sitting there that's half full, that makes no sense to me. The fact that I pounded five or six makes no sense to him. We we don't really understand each other. We're we're blood related, but when it comes to uh, drugs or alcohol, we're completely different. And that kind of goes against the notion of the predisposition that you know it's genetic. Um, addiction, alcoholism, they say alcoholism is genetic and you're predisposed to like become an alcoholic if it's in your family. What do you, like you just disproved that right there with your brother. Well, you know what? And I, again, I don't know the science behind it. I thought I had heard that they can um, scientifically do a test and look and see if you're more susceptible to being an alcoholic or not. I thought that they could do that. Um, you know what? It's weird on that sense because you could ask my brother um, or me. That's you know, my mom was an alcoholic and died of alcoholism. And you could ask me, why do you drink? And I could say, well, my mom drank and I drink. And you could ask my brother, why don't you drink? Well, my mom drank. But that's true because my sister doesn't have a drinking problem. She can drink a little bit and be good for a while, months, year, whatever. Me, I need to drink. Once I start, I'm going to keep going. And then I want to do it again in a couple days. Once I feel better, let's go again. Or maybe let's go the next morning because I don't want to be sick no more. Well, because for me, the, the phenomenon of craving kicks in. And I don't think that it does for him. He can drink, he's social, he enjoys that time, he sets it down. For me, I take a drink, the phenomenon of craving takes over, and now it's about how, I don't care if it's social or not, I don't care who's around me, I'm going to put as much in my body as quickly as I can, and um, and just to try to, to fill that, that craving. That's it, you hit it right on, that craving. That's what happens when we take that first drink. We don't want to stop. Alcoholics, they don't want to quit. You want to keep going until you can no more. And you want to get to that point as fast as possible. And I don't know. I have no, I don't have the solution of reason why, but. You know. And without a program, when I work a program, that phenomenon of craving is gone. It's been lifted. It's completely gone. And if I don't, over a short period of time, yes, the insanity starts to return, but the phenomenon of craving begins to come back. I start to fantasize about doing it. I start thinking about using. I start thinking about drinking and uh, and just leading right down back to that road of relapse. I have not craved or wanted anything in the last three and like three and a half months. That's, that's how much time I got, three and a half months, and I haven't even thought about it. But my mind's in a whole completely different place though as well. And I'm trying to surround myself with sobriety. I'm living sobriety just to remind me every single day that hey, you can go back to where you don't want to go back to. That's how easy it is. A lot of people don't understand that. Can you elaborate on that? How easy it is that a person in sobriety can lose it all in one bad decision. I've done it. And so basically for me, a lot of people might think that relapse was when they got to the dope house and they stuck the rock in the pipe or they were at the liquor store and they bought the beer and took a drink. Now, relapse started way before that when I said, I don't feel like calling my sponsor today. I don't feel like going to a meeting today. I had the, th I had that intuitive thought of what I needed to do today that was right. 
and I made a conscious decision to do the wrong thing. And that's when relapse started. Relapse started there. When a situation arose where I felt pressured, so I lied to get out of it, that's when relapse started. It starts right there with those things, when I'm dishonest. When I took something that wasn't mine, when I quit going to meetings, I quit calling my sponsor, and I knew it was right, and I did the wrong thing anyways. That was when relapse started. Yeah, I've heard that many times that, you know, you don't relapse after the fact. You've done it hours, days, months, years before you even took that hit. Like I was uh, having a conversation with somebody else the other day about white knuckling it or dry drunks, how attitudes are just negative in sobriety. Have you seen that experience, dealt with it yourself? I've been a dry drunk. I've done it. I've experienced it. I've been it. Um, Can you explain the definition for people that don't know? Yeah, you're just restless, irritable, and discontent, and you don't feel comfortable in your own skin, and and nothing is the way that it's supposed to be. Nothing's right, and nothing's going your way. And so the flip side of that is that when I'm working a program of recovery, everything is exactly the way it's supposed to be. It might not be the way I want it to be, but that's that's related to my level of acceptance. Everything is exactly the way it's supposed to be, and it's up to me to accept it and just be part of it and not to try to control it and, and be angry and just have peace and serenity. And, and most of the time in sobriety, I can experience that. And and I'm not, it's not just lip service, it's true. If it was just memorizing stuff, I wouldn't be very good at it, but I can tell you what I'm experiencing. And that's my experience. Uh, yeah, when I'm not working a program, uh, dry drunk for me is restless, irritable, and discontent, and just nothing's the way it should be. Yeah, I can relate to that because, like, now, since I gave up, like, I really actually, like, surrendered, like, okay, I'm done. I quit. I cannot control nothing. Just accept what comes. And I really feel so much better. Like I wake up every day like, damn, okay, what's going to happen today? I'm, I'm like optimistic. Before, I was always trying to pull those strings, control this, control that, control people, manipulate. That was like pretty much a hobby, pulling people's strings and doing that. <laughs> but, you know, it got me to where it got me. Now... I'm like, let me try something different. Let me approach everything from a different angle. Let me just be honest and see how it works out. Did you ever go through anything like that where you're just like, okay, I know it's the first step where you submit, like, okay, my life is powerless. And, right. Yeah, and it was just, it was out of sheer desperation. You know, I just didn't want to feel like that anymore. And so I was desperate to do whatever I needed to. And I was... Trying to control the world is a tiring place to be. And um, just surrendering and just wanting to be part of the world is a whole lot easier to do. You know, I just want to be a part of it. I don't want to control it or anything. Just let people be people. They do what they do. And, I, and just let me be a part of it. That's a good concept, a good way of life way to look at things anything else you want to add or you know touch on that we have been well we talked about the common myths 
it, we, and we covered, I had two points. One was the non-alcoholic point of view, which is that it, we're weak-willed. Now there's the addict's point of view, and we kind of covered this talking about it. One common myth is that going to meetings alone will keep you sober. When we covered that, that, that they won't. Um, How do you feel about support? In AA for like family members that are going through addiction, alcoholism. What do you mean by support? Like being there for them. Like what? Like for those that don't know, what is your point of view on that? Like, I I know you don't want to be an enabler, right? That's the word, enabling people to do what they do. So how do you draw that line? That fine. Well, and you know what? It would be the same as. I, now, I always resort to the gym because it's so easy to understand. Um, you know, if somebody said they wanted to get in shape, I would not mind sitting down and talking to them about how they could do it. But now it's up to them to do it. And sobriety is the same thing. If they if they really want to, I can talk to them. I can even point them in the right direction. Here's a list of meetings. Here's some places to go. But it's up to them to do it. I can't force them or make them. Uh, if they want to do it, Maybe they need a ride. I can give them a ride, just like I'd give someone a ride to the gym. I would I would help them in whatever way I could in a healthy way, but it's up to them. I'm not going to call them and bug them. Do you want to go? If you want to go, call me, and then I'll pick them up. We can go or whatever. Uh, I'll do my part to help them, but I'm not going to do it for them. I'm not going to make them do it because it's not going to work. Okay. So, like, for a family member that, for instance, is using and you see them, what would you do? Would you, you? I know you said you would speak to them, right? But after that, do you cut them off? You know, tough. Like I know you gotta have the tough love somewhere, but like, because I know a lot of people are dealing with this. A lot of people's family members are trapped in addiction. They're in that dark spot. How do they help them? Well, there's Al-Anon. There's Al-Anon for people that where Al-Anon's going to teach them how to set up healthy boundaries and what they should do in those situations in a healthy way. So they can do that. <clears throat> for me, if someone's using, you know, we had a lot of family members where they showed up to the family functions. They weren't quite like me. They were able to use and drink and show up and do stuff. That's not me. When I use, I'm gone. I am not part of nothing. You're not going to see me in some family reunion. I don't do that stuff. But they do. They function. They don't quit their job. I quit my job every single time I get high. I am done. I'm not doing none of that normal stuff. But they function somehow. So it's kind of up to them to determine whether they... This is the only disease that is self-diagnosed. If you go to the doctor and he says you have cancer and you go, no, I don't, you still have cancer. But... As an alcoholic, you're not an alcoholic until you say you're an alcoholic. I can call you an alcoholic all day. It doesn't mean nothing. This is self-diagnosed. Once I said I'm an alcoholic, then I could do something about it. And then there was options. Then there was meetings. And there was other people in the same situation that I could identify with. But that's up to me to do. So you could always just kind of put the information out there. They And this is kind of about attraction rather than promotion uh, you know in a lot of ways i'm not i don't have to sit there and shove it down their throat i just do what i'm doing they know what i'm doing and if they want it they can ask me about it yeah lead by example pretty much okay that's how i feel about it like you know i'm just gonna do me and show you the difference show you from where i came from to where i'm at today and if you want you know to know how it happened i'll help you let's go 
That's the whole point of it. If they're attracted to that and they want to do it, they'll ask me. That's it. I believe that. Okay, so, um, I don't know, anything more you want to offer or... Because I know, like, you've worked in, um, so, like, the treatment facilities for many years. Want to, sh- like, shine some light on that? Because for one thing for me, I never knew I could go to treatment. All my life, I thought, well, you got to have private insurance. And if you don't have private insurance, you're just screwed. And that's not the case. That's not the case. There's There are um, different facilities depending on your your income or um, or insurance. Oh, yeah, you know what? There's people out there. They're getting high shooting dope. And that was one of them in that situation. But I wasn't very picky about getting sober. Um, where they're real picky about getting sober. They're shooting dope with a dirty syringe in the back of an alley, but they're not going to go down to the halfway house to get sober. They have to have a five-star resort detox or whatever. Now, you know what? I would take whatever I could get. And there are places. There's places that will take you in right now with no money, no ID, no birth certificate, and help you get those things. But it's not the nicest place. But I wasn't coming from the nicest place either. I could get high in an alley, or I could get high in a mansion, and I can get sober at some rundown halfway house, and I can get sober wherever. Just like I get high wherever. It just was my level of determination. My determination to get high led me to all these weird places. I can get high anywhere. I can also get sober anywhere. That's true, too. I was blessed because, like, the place I went to, it was a nice facility. It was a great place. And I got to the point where I was, like, flying all across the country, partying in every little state I was at, and just in hotel rooms, just sick. Like, I can't do this no more. I, I hit a friend up that's in recovery from the last time I was sober, and I'm like, hey, man, what do I do? Where do I go? He sent me a picture of the facility with the car. Sent me the car, a picture of the uh, business car. I called them, and that's what I did. And I was blessed to go through that, to have people, that network of people that I could hit up. Like, hey, man, I need help. I don't know what to do. I'm in this hole, and I can't pull myself out. And it, it seems simple, like, just stop what you're doing. But it wasn't that simple. Like, when you got sober... What was it that made you change with that day, the situation? Like, as you said, family and everything caught up to you, but what was it exactly that, you know, the last straw? What broke the camel's back? Well, okay, so, like I said, I was already a dry drunk to begin with. And so I was driving trucks, and if you've ever met truck drivers, they have these wonderful personalities. And I had really become a truck driver. And they're, truck drivers are just difficult to deal with. And I, and I was becoming very difficult to deal with. I think I, it was very hard on my family. And uh, so my wife was already wanting a divorce. And uh, like I said, I had been with her for 15 years, and I, I didn't take it very well, and I wasn't working a program. So here's what happened. I went and got some dope, got high, went home, told her, things aren't working out around here, so I'll see you later. And then I told my littlest one, my nine-year-old, I hugged him, and uh, I was crying. He was crying, and I said, I don't think I'm going to see you again. And I got up, and I left, and I went to a hotel, and I sliced both of my wrists. And, uh, and what happened was, uh, 
and it's kind of stupid to say, but I was, uh, I couldn't find anything in the room to cut my wrists with. So I took the glass plate out of the microwave and I broke it into two pieces and I was having to cut slowly through each wrist with these pieces of glass, but I was tweaking. So I would start cutting and, uh, I'd be like, that's a cool looking remote control over there. And I'd go play with the remote control for a while. And uh, hey, bad, man. I'm sorry for laughing, but damn. <laughs> but that's what I would do. I would okay. be kind of high. And I'd say, well, I'll get back to cutting my wrist in a minute. I'd say, this is one hell of a remote control. And, uh, and then I would go back to doing it. And, uh, I was completely out of my mind. I was somewhere else in a different, like, reality. And, uh, someone called the police. And so I answered the door and the police were there. And I was covered in blood. And he said, hey, the neighbors called and said that they had heard some screaming coming from over here. And I said, I I haven't heard any. It probably was me. But uh, I said, I haven't heard any. And they said, do you care if we come in here and look around? And I said, come on in. And they said, is anyone here? And I was so out of it, I said, "I, I don't know. It was just a small room. But I said, I don't know if anyone's here. And he's like, you don't know if anyone's in the room with you? I was like, I don't know. So he came in and looked around. There was nobody there. And then he said, are, are you going to be all right? And I, and I lied and I said, yeah, I'll be fine. And he left me there covered in blood. Wow. That's crazy. Wow. But, you know, it it, it got you on the right path, all right? Okay. And then what did you do? I actually continued to get high for like another five days after that. And, uh, and... Just a, uh, you know what? I just, I got high for like another five days, and then I just decided that, that I didn't want to die. Is basically what happened. Everything else was over with. I already said, well, forget it. My wife's leaving me. Everything's done. All that's done. And uh, I, I don't know. I really don't know what to say. Maybe I just got it out of my system, you know. And, I, and I've given that. Ad- Someone gave me that advice a long time ago. I, I got high, and they said. I called him for help, and he had been sober for a long time. And this probably might not be the most popular advice, but I'll tell you what, it worked for me, and I've used it on other people, and I've seen it work for them. He said, you still own stuff? And I said, yeah. He said, go sell it all. Go give it all to the dope man, and when you don't have nothing, come and see me, and we'll get sober. And I and I followed his directions. You know? And I went and got that. In that time, I got 13 years sobriety. Doing that, I hit rock bottom, and I came and seen them. And that's basically where I had arrived. Um, but let me uh, interrupt you, because not everybody has to go that route. Because, you know, rock bottom is different for everybody. Rock bottom is different. Yeah, so, like, some people, they got to lose it all materially. Some people got to lose all the love of their family. Some people got to lose whatever. But rock bottom is a different concept for every single person. Yeah, it's perspective. I knew a lady who, uh, she was sober. I used to go to these meetings in Paradise Valley, and she comes in, and uh, we're talking, and she, she tells her story. She's drink- It's at some fancy ball where they have the evening gowns and all this stuff, and, uh, and she threw her wine glass, and it went across at her husband. They were arguing, and it hit th- this other guy in the face, and it cut his nose. She knew right then that she had a problem. She goes, that was my rock bottom. I was done, and she's been sober ever since. Now, I'm coming from a place where cutting someone with the glass was a daily occurrence. All right? That's not my rock bottom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this this time around, though, 
I don't know. I just got tired. I'm like, man, I can't do this no more. I've had worse rock bottoms in the past where it was like, you know, I was feeling just, just, I don't been through situations. But this time it was just like, nah, I'm tripping. This ain't me. Like, it ain't right. I'm this, I'm, like, there's an expression. A head full of AA will up your high. And I think the AA started coming back to me at some point. It was like a head full of AA and a belly full of booze. Yeah. Something like that. You know, financially, I hadn't hit rock bottom. I still owned some properties. I still had cars. still had big screen TVs and all that stuff. But emotionally, I hit rock bottom. It was the lowest I had ever been emotionally with my wife leaving and my kid uh, just kind of... I really abandoned my kid that day. I went to go kill myself. And I had a plan to do it. And I told him, this is the last time I'm going to see you. And I got up and left. And emotionally, I had, a, I had a bottom that I had never been to. And everybody has to hit that bottom, but it doesn't have to be the same for everybody. No. Well, but they have to hit their bottom. Okay. Because, like, I'm going to be honest. Like, when I was messing up, I knew I was messing up. I knew, like, yeah, okay, I'm tripping, but just one more day, just one more party, just do it one more time, and then a one turned to two, three, ten, a hundred, you know, but in the back of my mind, I knew, and we all proud, we all know, but we just do it, that's the insanity, right, we do it, because it feels good, we like the feeling of being high, being under the influence of something, so we don't have to deal with life, for whatever reasons. I started off that way. I remember when I first, the very first time I ever got high, I did it and I said, this is it. This is what I've been missing my whole life. I'm never going to stop doing this. It made me more talkative. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't shy around people. I was, I felt strong and brave. I was everything that I wanted to be when I did this. I was funny. I was just all these things. But was that true or was that a delusion? It may, I don't know. Well, those type of ideas are all perspective anyways. It's all the way that I look at myself. And I did look at myself that way at first. As things changed, the more I did, the more I got high and the longer it lasted, it started taking more and more a toll on me to where now I don't want to be around people. I'm not telling jokes. I'm miserable. Um, everything changed. It wasn't what it once was. They talk about crossing that invisible line, and I had crossed it. I did it because it was fun, and I had a good time doing it, and somewhere I crossed that line to where now I can't stop doing it. And it's not. That's that situation. That's how I felt. I was like, I, all, like, I ain't going to lie. When I was in college, oh, partying every weekend, every other day was cool. I had, I was on the dean's list. I was getting good grades, A's, B's, you know, I was good. And then somewhere along the way, I like, well, back then I always told myself too, I will never drink to feel better the next day. I will never keep on drinking when I'm sick. So, I, you know, it kept me okay for a while. But on this last run, I was drinking the next morning to stop shaking. I'm like, what the same me. I ain't never had this happen to me, but it was happening. I was drinking just to feel normal. It's were you at that point with drugs, like you know, because I know with heroin, they don't even get high no more. Yeah. 
at some point. They just get normal. Well, it started. Okay, so I, I started getting high, and the people I was, I was getting high with my dad, and it was really acceptable in my house to do it. That's what they were doing. But I had a girlfriend, um, and I lived in Scottsdale, and so I had this Scottsdale girlfriend who um, it was not acceptable to her. And so I would lie about it, and I would sneak out. And that's probably the beginning of crossing my own boundaries and just starting to chip away at my own ethical beliefs is when I started lying about it. Now I started hiding it. Um, I remember she gave me a watch uh, for my birthday, and I went, to, I went to the dope house, and I had bought some dope, and this dope man liked my watch. And he said, I'll, I'll give you some dope for that watch. And I said, no. I'm not doing it. And then uh, he threw a line down on a microwave from one corner to the other corner, and it was thick. And he said, I'll give you that line right now for that watch. Boom. I took the watch off and gave it to him and did it. And that was a big step of crossing boundaries. And I just, I would, so now my boundary line moved, and it just kept moving and moving and moving. And until there almost was nothing left. So it's little compromises. It was little compromises, they're right. And and before I knew it, I was way over here. I was something that I never thought I would become because I just kept compromising and I just kept moving that line. I remember saying, Well, I'll never steal from my family and I did. I remember saying, I'll uh I'll never put my, my hands on my old lady and I did. Everything that I said I wouldn't do, I did. That's what happens, though. That's the insanity, the madness of alcoholism, addiction. You become something you're not, and then you become that person. If you're if you live it so long, that's who you are. And a lot of people don't make it back from that. When because um, there's a lot of not yet's. When you talk to someone and they go, or I'm talking about someone in recovery, and they go, yeah, but I didn't, and they're probably going to be pretty young if they're having this conversation, but they go, yeah, but I never stole from my family, not yet. That's that's coming. That's on its way. Well, I never went to prison, not yet. There's a lot of not yet, but they're coming if you continue to live like that. That's true. That is so true. I never believed them. Like the old people at the meetings when I was younger, like, yeah, you're going to do this, you're going to do that. Like, no, it ain't. Nah, I know better. Like I said, I was drinking to feel better the next day because I'm shaking. I'm looking at my hand and it will not stop shaking. And I'm like, what? That was new to me. And I've heard it before. I've seen people before go through that. And I became that. But who whoever thinks that, yeah, I'll be that one day. Like the guy smoking crack on the corner or whatever, stealing TVs. He never said, I want to be that guy on the corner one day doing that. Well, no, because one of the other characteristic that makes us drug addicts and alcoholics is this severe self-centeredness that makes us think that we're different than everyone else. We're completely different. We are so selfish and self-centered that we believe it's almost like the Truman Show. Everything is going on for me, for my entertainment, instead of just being a part of the world. And that's how self-centered we are. I know addicts that look down on other addicts just because it's like, oh, you don't do the same drug. But it's like, yeah, you're still an addict. And they look down on them. Oh, yeah, they, they do heroin or they smoke crap. Drug the drug. 
The truth is, the probably for me, the best way is when I see somebody, when I see the homeless guy running up and down the street, looks like he's tweaking or whatever, that's me. That will be me if I don't do what I'm supposed to do. Now also, when I see, see these guys at the meetings and they're driving nice cars, that's me too. If I do what they are doing, that's also me. Now it's up to me. What do I want to do? Do I want to do what this guy's doing or do I want to do what that other guy's doing? That's where I have a decision to make. That's true. And pretty much I want to end on that note because that's the gospel. That's the truth right there. And anything else you want to add before we go? No, we're good. Thanks for having me on here. Yeah, I appreciate you stopping by and doing the interview, man. I hope this interview can help people out there. I hope they hear it and they're able to at least take something away from it. Some misconception is answered or just some type of motivation to help somebody or to help themselves. All right, man. Have a good night and I appreciate you coming by. Thank you very much.